0: This is Episode 16 of Cinescope, and you are who you choose to be. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Blaine Grimes to talk about one of our favorite films, The Iron Giant. Blaine, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to have you on. So uh, you're a part of the Real World Theology family, which included Mikey Fissel and Blake Ian Collier, who we've had on the show. And so how about you tell us a little bit about your involvement there and anything else you have to say?
1: Good. So, yeah, I uh, I am in with the Real World Theology crew. I actually do a sort of sub-podcast under their big network called Real World Rewind, which is kind of a mouthful sometimes, but it's a monthly podcast, so we're only we're only coming out once a month. And like the title suggests, we're rewinding or or taking a look back at some of our favorite movies from years gone by. Because normally, the main Real World Theology podcast is Keeping Up With Current Releases, So I get to pick up on all the things that they've missed or that were released before Real World Theology podcast started. So I get to do the podcast for them. I write some reviews. And then I also write for another website called Christ in Pop Culture. I usually write for them once a month uh, or so as well.
0: Great. So your involvement at Real World Theology is sort of similar in concept to Cinescope, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, very much so. Very much so.
0: And you actually have talked about today's film on your podcast, which is great
1: very true. But, uh, you know, I'll talk about the Iron Giant anytime. I get a
0: chance. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that conversation. And uh, it should be noted that we discovered that we both went to the same Texas Tech University, and we were there at the same time, apparently.
1: That's right, which is crazy. That's part of going to a big university. You never,
0: you never know one another. Exactly. It's very cool. Anyways, uh, before we do move on to our main discussion, just a couple of quick reminders. First, please go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe. Even if you don't use iTunes, it's a big help to us as a fellow podcaster. Blaine can attest to that. It is so important to growth and to outreach, and anything you can do in the way of that will be a huge help to the podcast. So thank you in advance for that. Also, follow up. I never heard back from our October 2016 giveaway winner, so I am going to do a live redraw right now. I have the names inputted into this random name picker website, and here we go. So the winner is Aaron Lindsay, who I believe is also a fellow podcaster. So Aaron, if you're still listening, hit me up. Let me know what movie you've picked to get for free, and we will get that taken care of. But again, you only have a week, and then I will have to redraw again, which I'd rather not do. I'd rather somebody take this prize home. So let me know, get in touch with me, and... We will get you your prize. So thank you very much, everybody, again. Go ahead and subscribe and rate and review, and that way you are already entered for any future giveaways. So that's out of the way. Blaine, are you ready to talk about this amazing film? I am ready. Great. So just a few details about this movie. It was released on August 6th of 1999 and was directed by one of our favorites, I'm sure, Mr. Brad Bird, who went on to direct The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Tomorrowland, and has the upcoming Incredibles 2 sequel in the next couple of years that we are all looking forward to. Now, unlike all of his other films, this film is a little bit different in the sense that it was not written by Brad Bird. It was written by Tim McCanleys, who went on to uh, direct and screenwrite the script for secondhand lions so that's different here bird normally writes his own scripts the music here was by michael Kamen, so this is before the bird slash partnership that we have going on now michael Kamen, of course composed for all four lethal weapon movies the first three diehard movies License to kill of course the james bond movie the very first x-men film and the theme for band of brothers and this movie does star eli marienthal jennifer aniston Harry Connick Jr., Christopher McDonald, John Mahoney, and Vin Diesel as the Iron Giant. Kick us off. Blaine, what was your first experience with this movie?
1: So I remember my first experience with the Iron Giant. I will never forget it. I was nine years old when the movie came out, so that'll tell you how old I am. It was released in 1999. I was nine years old. And I remember seeing all of the commercials on TV, just on regular cable channels, and I was begging my mom to take me to go see this movie. We didn't go see movies a lot when i was when I was really little, so it was it was a really special thing um But I convinced her to take me to go see the Iron Giant in theaters and so we went and It really was one of the most magical experiences I've ever had in a movie theater i remember I even remember the theater space and just sitting there amazed at at what I was seeing. And when you're a kid, you kind of love every movie you see, right? I mean, right. You, don't, you don't hate a movie as a kid. But even then, as a little bitty kid, I remember this was something special. This was something that I thought about for more than just a month or two after I saw it. This was something that, that stuck with me and has indeed stuck with me for my entire life. So I'll never forget getting to go see it in its original release in, in theaters. That is awesome. You know, I talking about movies on the show. A lot of these have
0: been movies that have been sort of staples for my childhood. And I wish with all of my heart that I had more specific first viewing experiences. And unfortunately, this is no exception to that. So the Iron Giant, we owned it when I was growing up. I was seven when this came out. I did not see it in theaters, but we did own it on VHS. So this was a little bit before the DVD craze sort of kicked in. I'm pretty sure my brother got a little figurine that came with the movie or something like that. And we certainly watched it a few times over the years, but. I mean, I don't think I really appreciated it until college, you know, which is sort of a funny thing to say when it comes to an animated uh, movie that is sort of marketed towards kids, but it just shows the strengths of Brad Bird and by extension, the Pixar team who, I mean, of course, Pixar is not involved now, but that's who he's chosen to work with over the years. And so it just shows that the right material can be marketed just as well towards kids as it is to adults. And so I grew to appreciate the Iron Giant more as an adult as I came to be more familiar with uh with Brad Bird himself and with movies in general. As I came to appreciate movies more, I came to appreciate this movie in particular more. And so last year I was able to go catch this movie on the big screen, which was amazing mm-hmm. uh for the, the signature edition re-release. It was so good the animation style is so great the visuals are awesome the the score is beautiful and i mean the story there's there's so much weight to the story in a kid's movie for an animated film let's sort of transition to talking about the story what what about the story in particular stands out to you blaine
1: so even as a little kid i was a big superman fan and I still am a big Superman fan. And so one of the things that I really love about this movie is this Superman narrative that's uh, that's built into it. In fact, someone that is either a part of real-world theology or is sort of in those networks, I cannot remember who, is, who has made this statement, but it's it's really appropriate. He, he says that it's one of the best Superman movies ever made. <laughs> and so I, I really do like the Superman narrative that, that we have going on in the Iron Giant that's, that's crafted in here. The scene where you've got... Uh, hogarth telling the iron giant look i'm reading this story and this is superman and he sees that the robot in that story is bad and superman has to beat the robot and so then it sets up this inner conflict with the giant where he sees well i'm this robot you know I'm i'm created to be a gun but that's not really what i want to be i don't want to be a gun and so then of course he becomes the savior of the of the planet instead he becomes superman
0: Right. And then doing some background research while preparing for this episode, I read that Brad Bird's sort of original pitch to Warner Brothers for this movie was, what if a gun had a conscience? And I mean, that's sort of the same thing that's been explored with Superman over the years. I mean, Batman versus Superman, full disclosure, I have not seen it. I have not had a whole lot of interest in seeing it. But from what I gather, the sort of narrative behind that is Superman is being held accountable for his actions because he is a dangerous being and a dangerous person to walk the earth. And so it's the same sort of thing with the Iron Giant. There's this creature of incredible power, incredible unknown power at that. And it's right in the middle of the Cold War. This is after World War II. Nuclear threat is everywhere. So it it really presents this weighty sort of narrative that explores more than just a kid's story,
1: right? Absolutely, I think this is one of those movies that just grows with you over time. Um, I too was able to make it to the theater to see to see it in signature re-release, and every time I see this movie, something different pops out at me. Right, I, I, I notice something different. Something different uh, hits me, um, hits me in a different spot. And this is a movie that's fun to watch with different people. So, I mean, I grew up watching this movie. I have that memory. Watched it a lot when I was a kid. Have watched it by myself. But then getting to show it to my wife and just getting to watch it with a room full of people. Very recently, um, I was able, I think it was over this past summer actually, I was able to host a screening of this movie at Alamo Drafthouse. So I was able to go up and introduce the movie, uh, talk about it for just a few minutes, and then chat with people about it after we watched it. And just getting to watch this movie with a crowd and talk with people after they watch it is really, really fun. So yeah, there's a lot to dig into, a lot that rewards multiple viewings.
0: That is so very cool. And you know, it should be stated that I think Alamo Drafthouse is actually bringing this movie back again in the next week or two for a couple or a few screenings. So if you have an Alamo Draft House near you, then you should definitely go and check this movie out. And we're about to talk about why (laughs) this movie is so important, especially in the career of Brad Bird and his early career and just animation in general. I mean, this movie came at a time when it was competing against the best of the Disney Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And it holds up just as well, if not better, than some of those. It really is interesting in that regard. Now, something else that sort of came up in my my research was that Joe Johnston, who was a storyboard artist for the original Star Wars films and then went on to direct The Rocketeer and Captain America First Avenger and October Sky starring Jake Gyllenhaal, actually designed the Iron Giant, which is pretty cool.
1: That makes a lot of sense, too. The Rocketeer is also a great um, early 90s Disney movie. And if you look at even the, the design of the Rocketeer's helmet, it's got that fin, just like the the Iron Giant does. Right. Um, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it looks very similar.
0: Right. Now, watching last night, uh, something that sort of really stood out to me was its similarities to both E.T., so going back to the 80s and seeing some familiarity there, but also towards the DreamWorks animation film, How to Train Your Dragon. You have the same sort of boy meets feared feared creature, right? And I'll make most of the comparisons to How to Train Your Dragon because that is more recent. So there's this this culture that's fearful of foreign weapons or in How to Train Your Dragon, it's dragons. At the drop of a hat, they're prepared for retaliation in both of these cultures. Now, a boy who's sort of an outcast befriends this foreign weapon, grows fond of each other, they're protective of each other, the culture discovers the creature and tries to destroy it. But then that very creature comes back and is ultimately their savior. And I don't say that to point out the excessive use of familiar story elements in Hollywood, but just to say that this movie took influence from others and it continues to influence others. And so I I think it's really cool to see those movie parallels.
1: If you listen to Brad Bird talk about the the production of the film a lot, even if you can get a hold of the Iron Giant Signature Edition on Blu-ray, which everyone should,
0: yes, because it's it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's
1: yeah, it's amazing. And there's a there's a new little documentary that um, that is on the Signature Edition on Blu-ray. I think it's called The Giant's Dream, and you get a lot of uh, footage of Brad Bird during production talking about basically trying to stick it to Disney with this movie and I mean he uses a lot of almost warlike imagery of like we're going to war with Disney and we're going to beat them we're going to take <laughs> it to them and we're going to we're going to beat them on their own turf. He was really aggressive, almost seemed like he was mad at Disney and wanting, you know, wanting some sort of revenge or something, which is funny to hear because of course now he's he's working for them. So yeah, that it's really funny. This movie was also originally envisioned as a musical. Interesting. I didn't know that one. Yeah, it, it just seems Very, very bizarre. But given its source material, I mean, it's based on a book by Ted Hughes, and um, it's nothing like the book either. So Bird definitely put his own spin on it.
0: One more thing I really had to say about the story, or at least the making of the film, is that, again, the animation is beautiful. From the very start of the film, as we see Sputnik orbiting the earth and then all of a sudden we see this distant object come into focus and it's this blazing fireball and we don't know what it is yet but there's these colorful flames all over the place as he descends upon the earth into the hurricane there's waves sloshing everywhere there's torrents of water and rain going everywhere and it's it's just from the very beginning it's so lush and it's detailed and it's cool to watch the animation because at the same time, it sort of seems like a precursor to the Incredibles as far as the the character design goes. Like, I see definite similarities in, to Bob Parr and Helen Parr and the kids and all that. I, I see that character design. But at the same time, looking back, it feels very classic in its animation style. It does feel like it's something that would come out of the 50s.
1: It truly does. And it it almost seems like the movie is a love letter to hand-drawn animation in an era, I mean, we're looking at 1999. I mean, you had Toy Story in 96, Pixar is taking off. So computer animation is becoming a big business and people are, production companies are starting to do this uh, and, and animate entire films with using computers. And so this seems like a love letter to, to that hand drawn animation. The exception of course is the giant himself. He was, um, he was animated using, um, computer technology to sort of give him a different look and feel from Uh, from the rest of the characters. He's supposed to look alien and not quite at home.
0: Definitely. Um, Do you have any favorite scenes?
1: I do. Um, Normally we want to go right to the touching stuff, but I think my, honestly, my two favorites are the, um, the prayer when, when Hogarth's praying with his mother. (laughs) I I wrote uh, that one down as well. The prayer is like, I laugh so hard every time. Every time the prayer scene comes up, just side <laughs> laughter every time.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it's this big dramatic affair. It, it is yeah. great, a great, a great comedic scene.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's just got that very almost like a Hitchcockian suspense of where you you let the audience know something that a certain character doesn't. And then watch us just like squirm in our seats while we're still laughing. It's just a, it's a really that's a really cathartic scene. And then I also really enjoy the uh, very short coffee scene when Hogarth is telling Dean, "You know, I drink, I drink coffee. I'm hip," and um, <laughs> he drinks the he drinks the espresso, and then he's talking 90 miles, ninety miles an hour and then crashes. I love all of the scenes early on in the film. Of course, I love the touching stuff at the end. Of course, I love you know I, I go, you stay, no following. I love that stuff. But I think a lot of the stuff that's going on early in the film, Pogart sneaking around with his BB gun is the stuff that really resonates with me because I was that kind of kid. I mean, I had a BB gun that I would run around on my grandparents' farm and, you know, like pretend I was in the army and all of this stuff. So, so like that stuff just brings me back to my childhood. And even when I was little watching it, of course I was like, Hey, this is me. Um, So it was easy for me to jump into the story.
0: Well, for me, I, of course, did write down the dinner scene as a favorite, and I also wrote down the sort of, quote-unquote, forbidden friendship scene, which is, the, you know, the scene from How to Train Your Dragon where Hiccup and Toothless are first interacting with each other, and there's no dialogue. There's a similar scene here where... The giant, uh, has brought the on off switch from the power plant to Hogarth and has shown it to him. And they both are sort of reclined back on their haunches and just sitting and exploring each other. And Hogarth begins to teach the giant words. This is a rock and this is a tree. No, it's, that's not a rock. This is a tree. They're different. We start to see the giant's personality for the first time. We, we don't see him, see him as this giant metal creature anymore. We see them, him as something that feels and learns and has, a very real personality that's similar to that of a child. And so it's a very interesting scene in that it is sort of forging their friendship. And then uh, other scenes that I did write down, but I won't talk about in depth now because I'm sure we will later are the, the deer scene where Hogarth sort of teaches him about death and its implications. And then the very ending, which you have already alluded to the you stay, I go no following, et cetera. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. I'm sure some more. Uh, for now, let's talk about some characters. Well, let's just start with the giant. What do you have to say about the giant?
1: I love the look and the feel of the giant. I know this is kind of a weird thing to, to like about a character, but I, I like I like how you can hear his ears grinding and turning. I like the physicality of the giant, the rumbling that comes when he walks. Um, I just think the design of the giant, which you mentioned, is is very, very interesting, very, very cool. And again, how they're using computer animation to make him look like he doesn't quite fit in this place. Like he, does, he doesn't quite belong. There's there's something going on there.
0: Going on about the giant's design, I love that he's full of surprises. So the first time we see him, I mean, he's just this giant space metal creature. Then there's a scene at the train tracks where he, is, he loses an arm and some other pieces. And, oh, don't worry, I'm not broken. I can fix myself. And so there's that. And then there's a scene later in the junkyard with Dean and with Hogarth and... He reacts to the gun and nearly blasts Hogart's face off, but we only get a taste of his full arsenal. And so, over the course of the film, we see: oh, he can do this; oh, he can do this; oh, he can do this. And you see how, in the right situation, how dangerous he could be. And so, in in that sense, the design is very interesting because it lets us discover him along with the rest of the characters.
1: Mm-hmm. He's a deceptively complex character because you look at him he's kind of slow he's trying to figure things out he talks kind of slow and drawn out so it seems like he's a fairly simple but obviously lovable character but then he's got this backstory built into him we know just from the theatrical release i mean we see what happens at the end of at the end of the film when he or any anytime a gun is pointed at him um, we see that all of his weapons pop out so we know that he was in some sense created to To be a weapon Uh, but one of the very cool additions in the signature edition of the film they added just two or three very little short scenes and one of them is a short little probably 30 second dream that the giant has where we see a little bit of his home planet we see him walking with other giants and we see them with all their guns out destroying things and so i really like how he's got this very rich backstory built in, even though he's uh, a seemingly very simple character. That's always something that really sticks out to me
0: about him. That dream sequence helps to sort of give credence to Dean's worry and sort of explosion towards the giant after he nearly kills Hogarth in the junkyard. You know, he sort of scares him off because, Hey, you almost did that to Hogarth. You almost did that. And it's him realizing his danger, but then that makes his turnaround, uh, not too much later, You know he only acts defensively Uh, it it makes that that turnaround a little bit more substantial i think so i I really like the addition of that dream sequence i just love the the character of the giants his his innocence and his need to learn and you know he learns right from wrong and he also learns about fear and he learns about others fear of him and it's it's sad really because there's this one scene where him and he's with hogarth and he sees the town and he starts running down to the town and Hogarth stops him because, hey, these people are going to be scared of you and they're going to retaliate against you. It's not safe. And so he just wants to make friends. But then as the, the, the film progresses, he almost kills Hogarth again. He starts to almost fear himself a little bit, I think, because he realizes the potential of his powers. And the fact that he doesn't remember things as well means he's not in control when those powers sort of kick in. It really is a powerful character just watching his growth over the film and the, the emotions that we're able to so clearly see. And speaking of his emotions, I, I, I love how sort of Wally-esque his eyes are. Both, both Wally and the giant have the, these shutters that go over their eyes and the way they slant and tilt and widen and narrow shows a lot of emotion. And I love how they're, they were able to find a way to express emotion without giving him goofy cartoon features. And I, I, I want to say one more thing about the giant. How, Funny is it that Vin Diesel voices this character because he went on to voice Groot. Uh, there's just something about Vin Diesel and broken English that is a recipe for success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: no doubt. And it Brad Bird has said before how lucky they were to get him because he was just sort of becoming a big deal when they were able to get him to to sign on to voice the giant. So yeah, it's probably one of those things that wouldn't work out were they trying to to make a movie like this now.
0: Right. Because, I mean, when did Fast and Furious originally release? Isn't that sort of what kickstarted his career, I would guess? Yeah,
1: I think so. So I
0: would th- I would think it's probably around that time, or at least not too long after. Uh, so yeah, it is very cool that we were able to get Vin Diesel in these kind of roles <laughs> back in the late 90s. I'd I'd love to see him continue. Of course, we've got another Guardians of the Galaxy film coming out next year. But uh, it's just funny how similar the characters of Groot and the giant are as far as their, their method of speaking goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what about Hogarth?
1: Um, I talked about Hogarth a little bit. But yeah, Hogarth is Hogarth is my favorite because I feel like I am Hogarth or was Hogarth as a little kid in many, many ways. Um, not only because I had a BB gun and would go run around and get into trouble and all of, all of that good stuff. I was actually too scared to go sneak out at night, so I never did that. But um, I was also – I was raised in um, a single-parent household, and so that was another thing that actually meant a lot to me. I think even on a subconscious level as a little kid is I was watching this kid who was doing some of the similar things that I was doing, but he was also struggling with some of the same things that I was struggling with, Um, and I think that really, really made an impact on me. But I I love his optimism. How even though he's in this situation that may not be ideal, he's um he's always very chipper. He just kind of lets things roll off um, and is focused on finding a way to solve problems instead of just sort of sitting in them and letting them control him.
0: He's an outcast and he's not the only outcast in this film, but he's probably uh, the one who handles it best uh, because he doesn't really seem to let it bother him and that that optimism that you're talking about sort of gives him the opportunity to talk to the giant who's also an outcast and they benefit from each other's worldviews essentially yeah and so i mean hogarth really is sort of blessed beyond his years uh, with wisdom and he's ideally placed to teach the giant right and wrong and the dangers of gun violence and the the value of life and the tragedy of its loss. And it's just interesting to see a character who is very clearly a child. He, he sneaks out. He... He makes stupid decisions. He eats snacks and watches scary movies after he's not supposed to, which is another one of those scenes that gives me a good laugh every time I watch. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he's an interesting character, both in how childish he is, but also in how wise he is for his age.
1: Yeah, I like how you brought that up. I mean, this is a film with many, many outsiders. Dean himself. I always kind of think of Dean and the Giant, and I guess Hogarth as well, on very similar trajectories where they're outsiders. I mean, Dean... Dean also looks, he looks very different from everyone else in, in the film, just the way they designed his character. He's got, you know, the black sweater or whatever. He's got the sunglasses. He has an espresso machine. So he's like, he seems like he's more up on the times. He's cool. He's hip. But he lives out in a junkyard, a scrap a scrapyard, out by himself away from everyone else. He's an outsider. And then, of course, he goes on that transition to sort of become, become part of a group, become part of a family by the film's end.
0: Yeah, Dean was on my next was next on my list. Do you have anything else to say about him?
1: That's the thing. I always want to go to with Dean. Um but I also love his I also love his chemistry as it grows with Annie. One of the other things they added with the signature edition was just a short little scene um in the first act of the film of Dean and Annie talking in the diner. And it's it's a, I mean it's just a couple of lines, but it helps you see that their relationship is growing and evolving, you know in between the time we see them first when we see them together again. So that addition, I think, really helps fill in some of those gaps. Again, the original, the theatrical edition is great. It's fantastic. But I really love how they were able to go in and add in some of these little beats that bring some more richness to this story.
0: Right. I mean, speaking to that just real quickly, the the signature edition isn't a version that doesn't have the fat trimmed. It just adds essential scenes, I think. I think the dream sequence, while not terribly essential adds a lot to the character of the giant and you get to see a little bit of dean in that scene as well and then what you're talking about here dean and annie and their relationship building even if it is just a couple of lines it gives that opportunity that gives them an opportunity to start that relationship a little bit earlier making the payoff at the end of the film a little bit more rewarding so what i had to say about dean is that he he's able to see the beauty in what is unwanted or what is different Mm -hmm. i mean by definition he works in a scrapyard and he makes art out of the scrap. I mean, that, that's as clear as it can get as far as what he sees about the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure or however you want to say it. He, he creates art from trash and he sees the giant's value in assisting him with that. He he sees that the giant has a tender side and an artful side, just like any other person does. And he he accommodates and helps Hogarth when he needs help. And so outcast helping outcast. And he, at the same time is able to see the, the giants dangers and is able to see both how dangerous he is, but how at the same time, not dangerous he is if he's not provoked. Any other characters you want to talk about?
1: I think Annie is such a great, great character because she brings a warmth to the film that wouldn't be there otherwise. Uh, And this sort of sassy warmth though. I mean, it is, but all the other characters, they have these quips back and forth with other, I mean, Kent Mansley is very sarcastic, as is Dean, and Hogarth is always, you know, joking around with people, being clever. But Annie brings this mother's warmth to the film, where you can see, like, her love for Hogarth just oozes out of every scene that she's in, even when she's scolding him or, you know, frustrated with something he does. Um, So I love the warmth that her character brings, and it's, it's a nice compliment to, you know, the sort of sarcasm and humor that we have from all of the other characters.
0: Right. No matter how Hogarth sort of misbehaves in this film, she always presents herself as the mother figure who's there to comfort him and to support him. And when things sort of go south towards the end of the film, she's there by his side. And yeah, she's a she's a great mother figure. Yeah.
1: Yep. What do you have to say about Kent? Kent is... <laughs> Kent Mansley, <laughs> he works for the government. No, he's he's a great character because you think initially he's just going to kind of be this big goofball, this bumbling detective. You know, he kind of, he goes and, you know, he doesn't believe that anything supernatural is going on. And of course all this crazy stuff's going on that he's just missing. Um, but then he, he turns into quite this this good, realistic villain. Uh, He he sort of makes this transition where he he really does believe in what he's doing and believes he's right, and he's going to do what it takes to get things done. So I think he's got maybe a little more depth to his character than we would see in a lot of the Disney films of that time. And I think that's something that's also refreshing that's helped set this film apart and has helped it have a legacy.
0: Yeah, you're right. He does sort of start off as a bumbling sort of, stupid character i mean it's funny because it's christopher mcdonald who i think most people would be familiar with him from happy gilmore as shooter mcgavin mm-hmm. and he, he's just this kind of like jerk of a character and i mean that that doesn't change here he he does that kind of character very very well but eventually i think he he's sort of representative of the dangers of fear and he's representative of the extreme fear and the 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 near desperation of the times i mean again this is the cold war this is Ultimate fear of Russia. Sputnik has just launched and everybody's scared that nuclear bombs are going to be falling from the sky any second now. And he is sort of the epitome of that fear. And he's willing to do anything and everything to save his own butt. I mean, he doesn't really care about anybody else's, but I think that is also sort of representative of the times people were scared and there wasn't anything you could do, not even duck and cover that was going to save you from a nuclear bomb. And so that sort of led to McCarthyism and stuff like that where everybody was being challenged for their beliefs and being accused of things they weren't necessarily guilty of. And it's like I said, he's just the ultimate representation of the dangers of fear, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Something really irritating about him, especially was his excessive use of nicknames for Hogarth. And it's even like showed to perfection, in this little montage where you just see him using nickname after nickname, after nickname, and they could become more irritating, the further along it goes, yeah, it's like fake companionism, or that's not the right word, but he he's trying to make a friend with Hogarth when he's not being genuine about it, and the the nicknames the "Hey buddy, hey sport uh all that kind of stuff is how he's trying to sort of weasel his way in to find information, yeah, and I mean his the danger of the fear that he sort of represents comes out towards the end of the film when he essentially launches a nuclear bomb against himself. And so, yeah, he's he's an interesting character in all of those respects.
1: Yeah. And Hogarth's certainly not having any of that because he's got all these other characters around him who are genuine friends or, or genuinely care for him. Even uh, Dean, like Dean, you know, is willing to take him in and hide him and talk to him and everything. And it doesn't seem like there's any sort of ulterior motive there. Uh, Dean is just doing this out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and of course, his mother cares for him very much. And then he's got this relationship with the giant where they're, they're equals. They're talking to one another. But Kent always has this sort of condescending and manipulative feel, just sleazy feel about him. And Hogarth is able to see right through that. And I think that's really insightful filmmaking because that's, kids are really good at being able to see through people's BS. Right. Um, for sure. And so, yeah, I do, I do love that. I'm glad you pointed that out.
0: Now, what about the music? Did you get a chance to, pay attention to the music this time around?
1: I did, yes. There are a couple of different things that, that really stand out to me as far as the score goes. I really love the little jingle for Duck and Cover. Um, yes. <laughs> and part of that is because it's actually very, very closely based on a um, a series of cartoons that were done in the 1950s, the late 1950s. They were actually shown in schools most of them in new york i believe and there's one particular film that was called birth the turtle i think is what it was called and it had a little jingle that was very similar to duck and cover showed you know like how how exactly to you know dodge a, a, a nu- or not dodge but cover yourself so that you would survive a nuclear fallout or nuclear blast and everything and so i love how this little tune is actually drawing its inspiration from something that actually happened which makes it cool, but also very terrifying because it is scary to think about these sorts of things being shown to school grade kids in the 1950s, and the 1960s. But that was, that was the Cold War. So the duck and cover sequence and that little tune is really catchy, but it's just, it's harkening back to an interesting and scary time in American history. But then also the Bambi, or sorry, the Bambi, the, um, the, the deer scene, the Bambi, I guess we could call it the Bambi scene. The music in that scene, in addition to the visuals, makes that all of that look and feel like Bambi. It feels magical. It feels ethereal. Like it almost feels like it's like it's otherworldly. There's a lot of strings, French horns that, that are brought in, but it brings in this sense of magic, only to have it shattered by death. And so you have the intrusion of death into this sort of harmonious, idenic almost scene. Um, and I really, really like the use of music, particularly in that scene.
0: Yeah, I think that particular track is called Souls Don't Die, or at least it, that scene leads into that track. Mm-hmm. And I did list it as one of my favorites. It's it's beautiful. And it also leads into one of the most beautiful theme-wise moments of the film and one of the biggest takeaways from the film. And so, yeah, it's it's perfectly accompanied by a Cayman score there. Now, I actually do own the score on vinyl. I think I have the Mondo pressing, which is pretty oh, cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so I, I am a little, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this score, wonderfully composed by the late Michael Kamen. It has the right energy for the right scenes. There's some good action music, believe it or not. And some of the, the high energy scenes with tanks and warfare towards the end. It's, it's cool for that. But at the same time, probably my favorite theme is the sort of giant assembling himself theme where you first hear it at the very beginning of the film as he's flying towards earth. And then we hear it again as he's assembling himself after the train crash and then at the very very end, as we see his body parts coming from all over the, the world to uh, join him in what is it, Iceland, where his head is, or something like that. Yeah. Um yeah. So there's there's that theme that's bum 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 bum. bum. It, it's like sort of twinkly is the right sort of word for it, I guess. And then all of a sudden the brass come in and it's really warm and wow, it's it's so good. So aside from those little moments in the score, there's some larger, grander moments when it needs to be. So there's the, there's some Superman esque as in John Williams, Superman music during a couple of scenes, the scenes that you would expect. But at the same time, there's those hugely emotional scenes like in souls don't die, the deer scene, or at the very end, I go, you stay that moment. So again, I mean, Cayman's just so gifted. It's a shame. He, he didn't live longer and we don't still have scores coming in from him today, but this was one of his last ones actually. And it it is very good.
1: Yeah. There's also a little, I forgot to mention, there's a little bassoon motif for Kent Mansley. I can't hum it, but it's just kind of this comical little motif that comes in every time we see, or almost every time we see Kent Mansley on screen. And that's really fun.
0: That is fun. I'll have to listen to it, but that sort of reminds me of, you know, Inspector Gadget's theme is known for being on bassoon, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if they're trying to make a sort of a subconscious connection between Kent Mansley and Inspector Gadget as far as like bumbling idiot goes. I don't know. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not familiar with a whole lot of Cayman scores, but of the ones I am familiar with, I think this is probably my favorite. You know, I I mentioned earlier that, you know, nowadays we have a sort of Brad Bird slash Michael Giacchino collaboration thing that's been going on since the Incredibles. And knowing that now, I still don't regret not having a Michael Giacchino Iron Giant score just because Michael Cayman score is so good. Definitely. Okay, so now we're on to the, the sort of the takeaway section of the show. So what do you take away from this movie?
1: What I take away from this movie, like I said, largely varies from, from screening to screening. One of the things that really, really fascinates me that I, you know, I didn't pick up on really at all as a little kid is the use of the Cold War setting. Because it's just such an interesting... I mean, the book, the book on which it's based... I think I think it does mention the Cold War, but the Cold War doesn't sort of serve as the sort of centerpiece of the in, the entire book, if I'm remembering in in the same way, because there's a flying dragon and all of that good stuff in the book. So it's interesting to me. I've, I've I kind of wondered why why did Brad Bird want to set this film during the Cold War era, and so it's really interesting that I mean the Cold War was a time of great fear, suspicion. You had the ra- Red Scare going on, so everyone was a potential communist, and you couldn't trust anyone, right? You're supposed to be watching watching your neighbors to make sure that they were they were good neighbors. You had McCarthyism, the blacklisting of celebrities. But ultimately, the fear of nuclear annihilation, it manifested itself in this fear of the alien, the outsider, the other. And so really, the Cold War serves as the perfect setting for the iron giant to come in because the iron giant in this film is the ultimate outsider. He's the ultimate alien. So then the cold war serves as the perfect sort of kettle to get at this, uh, or, or sort of brewing cauldron, if you will, to get at the, uh, the irony that it, that salvation or our rescue comes from the most unexpected of places, even, um, people we think are our enemies. So it seems extremely, the iron giant seems extremely timely, Even though it's set in the Cold War and, you know, the Cold War is supposed to be dead and gone with and we're all harmonious and we live in peace now and all of that good stuff. Um, It's timely, especially in light of we had a little thing called the election last week. Yeah. And right now, if you go on social media, or at least when I go on social media, I see people on both sides and every side and every corner you can imagine vilifying um, there are opponents to the nth degree, and I mean, everything's just filled with so much hateful rhetoric, right? And social media and news media everywhere. We're seeing so much hateful rhetoric and so much, um, so much conflict. I think this movie is timely because it reminds us that we need to stop. We need to listen. We need to try to understand and appreciate and care for those with whom we disagree instead of just trying to destroy them.
0: Right. And again, it's, it's talking about the, the dangers of excessive fear. We live in fearful times even now. We don't know what our new president elects going to be like. We don't know what the alternative would have been like. I mean, it's the fear of the unknown and just fear in general. And it can lead to the dangers of fear, basically, is the, what I'm trying to get to is, uh, that's what Kent Mansley does. He ultimately dooms the town. And it's because of the actions of this outsider, as you were talking about, that sort of saves them again from unexpected places hmm.
1: Another thing that's really stood out to me in this film that didn't when I was a little kid or even when I was older, but something that stood out to me more recently since um, I'm now married and I've been able to watch this with uh, with my wife is this movie really gets at the sort of odd nature, just like insane sort of nature of what a relationship is, because a lot of times I think we can all fall into the trap of thinking that relationships are. Uh, be it with a significant other or with a family member or whatever, relationships are sort of there to add something to our life, to enrich our lives. And don't get me wrong, relationships do that, right? We benefit from relationships, relationships enhance our lives. We, we get things from others we love, not, not even just literal physical things. Um, but we get emotional things, right? We get, we get support, but a lot of times we can fall into this trap of primarily conceiving of relationships as things that just fulfill us on a personal level. And like I said, while all that is, is certainly true, this movie is a reminder that a relationship, a true friendship, a true love for someone else um, will result in you giving of yourself in the deepest po- and possibly most painful ways that you can Right. Even maybe having to lay down your life, give your life for someone else. I mean, this is this is exactly what the giant does. Um, this is even what someone like Dean does. Right. He goes from being this self-centered, self-obsessed sort of jerk to someone who's actually sacrificing his own safety, his own well-being um, for Hogarth and for the giant. So that's another thing that's pop- that's popped out to me more in, in sort of my recent viewings that I didn't pick up on at all
0: right that that's something that i didn't necessarily think about as much and so i'm lo- looking forward to watching it again and paying more attention to that theme in particular and i think it that goes again to saying how great this benefit this movie benefits from a rewatch and from multiple rewatches you you walk away learning more and noticing more and yeah it's it's a it's a great movie so thank you for that
1: yeah i almost think it's one of those things you you need to watch it and talk about pe I mean, you really do need to talk with other people about this movie because we all see different things in this movie. That's, that's what makes it great.
0: So in addition to fear and the cold war setting, there's this anti guns or anti war sort of message in the film. But to sort of conflict with that, I would say that the military aren't really the bad guys here, which you would think they would be again. Kent is the ultimate bad guy here. So yeah. it's, it maybe it's sort of a difference between aggression and protection, Right, So aggression is bad, protection is not, or something like that. And it's echoed by the the giant himself because he only attacks defensively. And so I I think that's an important thing to walk away with this from. It's not necessarily pacifism. It's a lack of aggression, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this movie has a lot to say about identity and how we arrive at our identity. Because the giant is someone who was created to be a gun, has been told by other people that he's a gun. And then Hogarth comes along in his life and shows him who Superman is, And right? And and then very literally tells, tells the giant, he's like, guns kill, you are not a gun. And so he starts repeating this, I'm not a gun, even though he actually, it, like that's what he's designed to be. Like in the strictest sense, he is a gun, but he chooses not to be, right? So this movie has a lot to say about how we let, um, other people define us or how we how we find our identity in in certain labels
0: yeah you are who you choose to be yeah Which, that that quote and it's about being true to yourself rather than giving into the pressure of others or in the case of the giant the pressure of his programming i suppose and forging a path or identity for yourself a moral code and so that that really is driven home as well mm-hmm. and then going back to the deer scene that we've talked about earlier The idea that killing is bad, but dying is not. And wow, what a great lesson to put in a kids film, you know? Yeah. Because death happens. It does. And kids are going to be introduced to it at some point in their lives. And what better way than to see it in a safe movie like this is geared towards kids to a certain extent. And okay, wow, the deer died. Now what's sad about that? Okay, he's not alive anymore. But. do we need to be sad about that? No, that's a part of life, and it'll happen to all of us at some point, but it's not something we have to fear or be scared of, because as long as somebody's not taking that life away from you, then it means that you've you've lived a happy one, basically, right? Does,
1: does that make sense? Oh, that makes that makes a ton of sense. I mean, we live in a culture that tries to avoid thinking about death as much as possible. We do everything we can to avoid thinking about death. So it seems like this is extremely, extremely healthy, not, I mean, for kids, absolutely, and you're exactly right. Like, this is something I want to show my kids when I have them. I want to, I want to show them this film and let them, let them see this and talk with them about it. But shoot, it's a good reminder for me because yeah. I try to push that to the side far too often. And I think, oh, I'm young. I've got plenty of years left. I mean, we all, we all do this. Um, but this movie is a good reminder that, yeah, yeah, life is, life is precious and, um, it's not, uh, it's not to be taken for granted
0: we just don't want our kids first experience to be death with to be devastating to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a a safe environment, a healthy environment for them to become familiar with death and to have somebody else tell them this is what death is and it's a part of life and that's okay. And uh, yeah, I I just think that's so important for for children. Anything else as far as relevance or takeaways or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I would just, I mean, I would just want to stress again, I was thinking about this so much uh, as I was watching it again, Recently, just in light of the election and everything, I think, I think the Iron Giant is such a good reminder that we do, we all, and I would say this to myself as much as anyone else, we do, we need to, we need to be ready to listen, to pay attention and to care for other people before we throw mud. And I mean, of course, there's room for disagreement. There's room for discussion. There's room for all of those things. But the Iron Giant is definitely a reminder that sometimes the very thing that we need most can come from those we don't expect it to come from so yeah i just i think this is an incredibly timely film and always will be in in uh, one sense or another definitely
0: Uh, there's definitely stuff we can take away today in 2016 there was stuff we could take away in 1999 and uh you're right it'll continue to be an inspiration for all of us i'm sure any other final thoughts about the film anything you maybe haven't said yet or you wanting to convince people to watch it if we haven't done that already
1: Yeah, I would say you should definitely watch it. And if you're a parent, like you, you, I mean, you have to show this to your kids. This is a movie that your kids need to see. It's good for them. It's healthy for them. And you'll have a lot of, you'll have a lot of fun together and you'll, you'll cry together. So yeah, I I would just, I always push people. I'm like, please, please, please see this movie. Uh, It got overlooked in the movie theaters because the marketing job for it was, was abysmal. And so it wasn't until it went on, it came out on VHS, um, you know later that it was discovered and people started to realize hey this is a really good movie and so now it's it's i mean it's a modern day classic so please do uh watch the movie
0: right i would say that there are a lot of movies that are must watch and this is one i would say are is uh must own it's it just yeah. came out on blu-ray for the first time a month or two ago it is ten dollars on blu-ray on amazon go get this movie and enjoy the crap out of it because it it is so so good And I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I think it could be argued that this might be Brad Bird's best film. Now, I'm not making a decision one way or the other because that's not what this show is about. But the important thing to me is this definitely holds up to every single one of Brad Bird's films. Mm -hmm. It's on the same level of quality. It's the same level of workmanship. And it's the same level of films that you learn from and things that you can take away from as his other films. And yeah, so I mean, whether it's his best one or not, it's not important. The the important thing is it's just as good as anything else he's produced in the years since.
1: I will say for me, this is just such a nourishing film. If you had the whole, you're stranded on island, you could only have you know one movie or something like that. I don't know if it would, I don't know if my one movie would be the Iron Giant, but if I could grab a handful, I know the Iron Giant would be in there. This is a movie that just refreshes me, encourages me, challenges me makes me laugh makes me cry every single time i watch it 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 never
0: grows old right it's endearing it's beautifully animated Mm -hmm. and unfortunately it's terribly unknown to so many people so if you watch this film it's less than an hour and a half long you have no excuse (laughs) Go, (laughs) go get this movie go watch this movie and then once you see how good it is then share it with other people so that everybody can be introduced to brad bird's outstanding film here yeah Well, is that it? Anything else?
1: I think that's all I've got written down. Yeah.
0: Excellent. That is the end of the official 16th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much, Blaine, for being on the show.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. No problem.
0: Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please, again, rate and review on iTunes. And even if you don't use iTunes as your primary podcast provider, please subscribe because that all helps. Email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com, and you can also use that email address to contact me regarding co-hosting. I'll say now, next week's co-host is somebody who has contacting me through email, and uh, we'll be talking about a movie, which I will announce next weekend online, and uh, yeah, so if you're interested, if you have a movie you love like The Iron Giant or anything else we've talked about, then definitely let me know, and we'll get you on the show. Now, Aaron Lindsay from the Two Middle-Aged Dudes in a Microphone podcast. You won our giveaway. Contact me in the next week or you will not get your free movie. And I want you to get your free movie. So uh, <laughs> contact me. Blaine, where can people find you online?
1: You can find me on Twitter at at D-E-P-T underscore of underscore tourism because I like to make it really hard for you to find me. So, <laughs> so there you go. You can follow me on Twitter. You can um, check out my podcast and all of my other writing at realworldtheology.com and you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or anywhere else and you can find me writing over at Christandpopculture.com as well.
0: And I will definitely be going back and listening to your Iron Giant episode of Real World Rewind. Uh, I I sort of saved it for after the podcast so I could have all of your thoughts fresh for me. So, I'm looking forward to going back to listening to that and listening to your other episodes and continuing to talk about this movie and other movies with
1: you. Yes, absolutely. It was a blast.
0: Yes. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Yes. Now the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C H A D A D A D A. And on facebook.com slash Chad Hopkins, all these weird usernames, all of the show notes and contact information can be found at the dot com. So don't worry about spelling things. Just click in the show notes and you will be able to find us there. And that is all for this week. Once again, one more time, thank you so much, Blaine, for being on the show. It's been awesome. Absolutely. And everybody else, thank you for listening to episode 16. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 17. Have fun and celebrate movies.